Sarah, what a profound joy to welcome you in person here to CBE, to hear your reflections, your teaching. After years of learning with you and praying with you over Zoom, what a profound joy to watch you become a bat mitzvah here in our sanctuary for you to chant from the Torah, for you to teach us Torah as a member of our community. What a blessing you have given us today. You spoke today about your journey to claiming your place among the Jewish people. Your journey to memory, to history, to ancestry, to roots, to belonging. How poetic that you taught us today about your tribe and your people, called the Nilotic people, for your origins in the Nile Basin. Just as we read today about our people's story in Egypt, around that very river, on the very week that we read about our children being thrown into that Nile to die, you are telling us about the Nilotic people who want to rise up to join or rejoin the Jewish people. Yours is a different story than most Jews have heard before, a very different story than the one that we typically know here. And all of this raises the very human question, who are we? How do we define ourselves in relation to edges and boundaries, to us's and them's, to identity and to belonging? Our parsha opens, Rabbi Art Green points out that while translated, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. It equally can be read in the continuous present, Habaim, as, as they come to Egypt. And of course, many people know that the word Mitzrayim is not just Egypt, but it's the straits, the delta, the narrow place where you're squeezed on both sides. It wasn't just that generation, but all of us in a continuous present tense who are faced periodically with the, the possibility or the inevitability of narrowing, of shrinking, of contracting. We go through times in our history and our world when people want to patrol the boundaries of who is us and to demarcate and to narrow and to sharpen and to delineate and to exclude. And in this week's Parsha, it's Pharaoh who plays that role. But it's a universal human experience that we all sometimes enter the narrow place where we are constricted in our vision and in our imagination, in our ideas of what's in and what's out and who's in and who's out. A new king arose over Egypt, the Parsha tells us, but in Talmud Sota 11, Rav and Shmuel argue about whether this really was a new king after all, given that there's no mention that the old king died or whether it's the same old king who suddenly started behaving as if he didn't know Joseph. Hizkuni, who you quoted, suggests here that his attitude vis-a-vis -vis the Israelites underwent such a change that he might as well have been a different king altogether. Just so happens that we're discussing a book here at CBE, and some of you are in the, that conversation, it's called Anti-Judaism by David Nirenberg, and it's a book which traces the history of anti-Jewish ideas. And it just so happens that today, as we're reading Parshat Shmot, as we're hearing from you, Sarah, we're also discussing the chapter of the book that focuses on ancient Egypt. And it turns out that in the year 650 BCE in Elephantine of, at the southern border of Egypt, there was an Israelite garrison and an Egyptian garrison who worked together. 
There was an Israelite temple where animal sacrifices were actually performed, right next to an Egyptian temple. And the people lived and worshipped side by side with no incident for 200 years. But then in the year 419 BCE, in what's known as the Passover letter, the Persian Empire ordered the Egyptians to stay away from the Jewish temple during Passover. So it seems it was, they were responding to some kind of animosity. And then nine years later, in 410 BCE, the Egyptians destroyed that Jewish temple. And there are four theories about what went wrong that led to that destruction. First, that the Persians, when they came and conquered, destroyed the Egyptian temple during their conquest, but spared the Israelite temple, possibly in monotheistic solidarity and possibly as a strategy to buy Israelite loyalty. And in turn, the Jews did not take part in subsequent Egyptian rebellions against the Persian rule. And they were probably seen as disloyal by the Egyptians who were their neighbors. They were probably seen as Persian allies. And then the Egyptians were likely offended by the sacrifices of lambs on Passover. Sheep were holy to the Egyptian god Knum, and that was happening in the temple next door. And finally, Passover itself was probably offensive to the Egyptians in that it's a celebration of their defeat and the destruction of their civilization at the hands of the Israelites and our God, after all. Josephus said that it led, that, that storytelling, that our holiday led to bitter enmity at that time. Now, David Nierberg posits that this could have been the beginning, this whole episode, of a pro-Egyptian retelling of the Exodus story from an anti-Hebrew perspective and the beginning of a narrative of Jews as an enemy people. Over the next 200 years in Egypt, that narrative developed and solidified. And the story became that, first, the Jews were not redeemed from Egypt, but were driven out. Second, Jewish practice is diametrically opposed to all other peoples, particularly Egyptians and Greeks. And it was at that time the Greek Empire. Third, Jews are enemies of all gods. And fourth, wherever Jews rule, it is brutal and tyrannical. The Jews are misanthropes and the enemies of all mankind. By the time of the Roman Empire, these ideas had become so accepted and widespread that by the second century of the Common Era, all of the Jews of Egypt were destroyed. Sometimes forces sweep over a society, pulling upon and pressuring its people, its leaders, to descend into narrowness. We see that dynamic happening in this country, in this time, in some corners. And that pull leads people to oppose and to scapegoat and to define out certain others. And in these opening verses in the, of the book of Exodus, we can see exactly how it works. It starts with behaving as if you do not know Joseph, as if the people are essentially and fundamentally different from you, such that they're unknowable to you. Then imagining that they are a threat because of size or number or some other reason. They're far too numerous for us, Pharaoh says, that they might be a fifth column, a potential danger. They might become your enemy or side with another enemy. In the event of war, Pharaoh says, they may join our enemies in fighting against us. And then the next step is oppressing them, trying to stop them from growing, eventually trying to kill them. And then eventually you're throwing babies into a river to drown them. The basic pattern described in the first chapter of our Parsha has been repeated again and again and again throughout human history. 
always beginning with, we don't know Joseph. We don't know them. They're not like us. But just as there is contraction in the human experience, there is also expansion in the human experience. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 118, from the narrow place I called out to God, and God answered me from the wide open space. On Monday, we celebrate the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who wrote the following words sitting in a narrow place called the Birmingham Jail. In a real sense, all life is interrelated. All people are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. <clears throat> Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. The question of narrowness and openness, of contraction and expansion is not just geopolitical, though it is. It is also personal. It is also communal. It involves everyone. Not that long ago, many Jews, Habaim Mitzrayma, we were living in a narrow place in that many white Ashkenazi Jews imagined the Jewish world as basically white and Ashkenazi and did not see or know the true picture, the true breadth, the true diversity of the Jewish people. But thank God, our narrowness has expanded. And God has answered us from the wide open space. Thank God, the invisibility and exclusion of Jews of color and Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews is ending. Thank God. We are seeing the inescapable network of mutuality, the interrelated structure of reality. Thank God. We are claiming and reclaiming and seeing and knowing and telling the stories and broadening the histories and acknowledging and counting who is actually here among our people on all of the continents of the earth. And thank God we are making space for those who understand and believe their history and memory and roots to be tied to the Jewish people to be able to find their way home. For in their journey home, we are all expanded. Welcome home, Sarah. Welcome home. Shabbat shalom. <laughs>